Hello. I'm just uh, laying down some fire tracks. I'm plugging in the phone to the laptop because I've heard that that makes the sound better, especially uh, on the YouTube. So hopefully it does. Fingers crossed. I'm going to do this from now on. And if that works, I'll be happy. Folks, I'm sorry, facing. We love to do it, don't we? We love it. I want to kiss you guys. I want to do the sorry face when I kiss you. And the boys, the guys, and the girls. Many, many people told me that at that rally, he just was doing my impression of him. And not, damn it, they're right. So many people have said that I do a bad impression of Trump. And I'm telling you, I do Trump at his most concentrated and condensed, which means once in a while, he's gonna like hit the top of the, the meter. You know, he's gonna he's gonna um, what's the term in uh, in acoustics when you blow out? He's gonna blow out the top of the of the of the key, and then he's gonna sound like me. Then he's gonna go. I want to kiss the guys. I want to kiss him. I want to give him the big kiss because I'm immortal, folks. I drank. The Mercury, I did it. I followed the golden path to the Mercury concoction, and now I'm the immortal emperor. Folks, we love to see it. I've got an emperor, and I've got an army. I've got a beautiful terracotta army. And guess what, folks? They're going to rule the world on my behalf, because I'm the emperor, the immortal one. And I've got an immortal terracotta warriors. And guess what, guys? I'm going to live forever. Uh, Yeah. He literally thinks he's immune now, even though we're not even sure that uh, there's any long-term uh, immunity provided by uh, infection. Because we've already got a. Because I know a number of months ago there were a spate of reinfection cases in South South Korea that eventually turned out to be uh, just failures to have like accurate testing, essentially. Uh, like they were they tested it was a, like it was a it was two false. It was like a, a positive and a false positive or something like that. But um, in this case, it looks like we've got at least two confirmed re-infections, re, uh, including one of a woman who died. I mean, she was very old, but still. Uh, it's, folks, it's not great. It's not great. I do have the tightest bussy in the five boroughs. So instead of accepting that reality, he has instead concocted a reality where he is immortal now and immune and his blood could probably be synthesized and if we could make a if people say how do you get the Trump people to make it uh, to take a Trump vaccine or any vaccine just say that you made it with Trump's blood if Trump says that his blood is going into a vaccine everyone would take it and you know what it would probably give us what it would do is even if it was total placebo it would essentially reorient our way, our understanding of disease and reality to such an extent that we would actually cure COVID, but what by essentially redefining COVID out of existence. Like over time, like we would still have the deaths and we would still have the sicknesses, 
but we would just break up the apparatus for even recognizing it, which was always the basis for Trump's COVID policy. Stop, don't test, don't test, because you get tests, you get positive results, so you don't want that. And you could make that a reality by simply defining the, the disease out of existence. And if you say, well, that's going to lead to things like, you know, lots of uh, people going to the hospital, maybe the capacity won't be there. Well, one thing is you do is you build, you, you direct re, uh, resources to building capacity to deal with these increased deaths, but the increased deaths lose the urgency of corona. They urge, they, they lose the, the patina of, 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 of exception, and they reestablish a normal baseline where now we have X number more deaths a year from this infectious disease, but it is not coronavirus. And that means everyone's back to work, and everybody's back uh, maskless, and there's no social distancing, and everybody just lives their lives with a slightly higher risk of dying or getting a long-term neurological disorder or long-term lung damage. It just becomes a new normal. The way cancer rates going up over the years is something people accept. Hey, you're getting older. The price of that is you might get cancer. You know, you've gotten older, the price of that is you might get this thing, or whatever we're calling it. And honestly, that's the most realistic thing we could do. If we wanted to be pure realists about this moment, like we're going to strip everything of morality, we're going to strip it of even like uh, recognizing, even, even evaluating from a political perspective. Like, let's say we're not even going to try to wring any political juice out of the failure of COVID and say, oh, look, you know, COVID is... Uh, COVID is capitalism's fault, uh, and we don't want to let capitalism off the hook. But if we recognize that there's nothing elucidating about this moment, and that the COVID moment has no revolutionary potential, we could just say, okay, fine, we'll do this, because then at least you could fucking get back to, like, a functioning system, and restart the economy in a meaningful way, and deal with, like, because otherwise this is an intractable problem. Having a system set up that has no capacity to do the things like wide-scale uh, 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 wide test and tracing capability and lockdown capability, most importantly, the kind of things that would be facilitated by a, I don't know, massive suspension of rent, massive suspension of mortgage payments, complete suspension of all debt collection of any kind, uh, mass infusion of direct cash payments to people to obviate the need to engage in the service economy and go outside of the home and allow for large-scale lockdowns around areas of infection that were tested rigorously, that would be wonderful. Who's going to do that? You think Joe Biden's going to do that? talking about the realistic solution to this it's just redefining it out of existence and adding it to the perils of life the way that we went from zero people getting killed every year in car accidents to 50,000 getting killed every year in car accidents that is a 500 that's a 50,000 percent increase I believe and not and it's not a thing that we think of as a crisis it's a thing we manage and it'll be another thing we manage and of course that will disproportionately fall on the poorest among us People least access to health care, least able to take off from work, least able to even be aware of this threat. The least, basically people who are forced by the market to risk their lives more than they previously were. Yeah, that's awful. The only thing that's going to prevent that from happening is an intervening political movement. Some sort of political uh, uh, organization that interrupts this process, that puts the fucking broomstick into the spokes of the machine. That's the only thing that's going to stop us from sliding towards that outcome. 
And of course, maybe we get a vaccine. Maybe we get a vaccine. And then everybody can just act like, you know what? Guess what? And here's the thing. Trump wins. Say, let's say hilariously Trump wins, which not outside of the realm of possibility at all. I'm not going to say in any way Joe Biden has this thing rocked up. I think he'll probably win. But my God, I'd certainly have more. I would be less, much, much less surprised, I'll admit. I'll be way less surprised if Trump wins than I was that he won the first time. That was genuinely shocking. I'll admit, I was out to lunch like that on that one with a bunch more coastal elites. We weren't enough close enough to the ground. And if you want to ever own me by saying you didn't see Trump coming... Even though you could listen to us talking about that fucking election and talking ourselves over and over again right to the precipice of recognizing that, holy shit, he is the one of, he's the man for this moment. He's going to win this thing. He's the one who makes sense in this context. Everything about, like, if politics is a game show, if politics is a spectacle, then he should win. But no, it's not that much of a spectacle yet. There's still a grounding. There's still a reality. There's still fence posts. And now, and then we found out, nope, no, no, no. That firmament you thought there was totally rotted away. So I fully admit that, that it could happen again, and I'll be way, way less surprised if it does. But man, if Trump wins, and then, like, halfway through his term, after, you know, he, like, loses in, big in this House and Senate again, and gets impeached again, and, get, and ignores it again, then we get a vaccine, and then he, like, leaves office, he's like this decrepit ball, like this, somehow this, like, Dehydrated but also wet sack of, of like uh, Ron Popeil rotisserie meat, bright orange, just sliding allegiously out of the fucking fronts of the White House. Just go, I said it would go away magically. I said one day it would be gone. And look, it is. It's gone. Look, it's gone now. I said it. I said it. You heard me say it over and over again. Then eventually one day, like magic, it'd be gone. And now it's gone. Because for Trump, it is only the moment it is in. Past does not exist only as a vague memory that you have shaped into a, into a fucking mirror of your of a, of a delusion mirror, mirror of yourself, putting yourself in in this position of fantastical uh, uh, command of the moment. When in reality you are a fucking moron who is barely aware of your, what's going on around you. Oh man, they see that uh, apparently Eli Lilly was doing trials. Uh, oh no, Johnson and Johnson, which I was surprised by. I thought they made like soap and shit. I guess they're also a pharmaceutical company. They were doing a trial vaccine, and they had to stop the trial because of an unexplained illness or an unexpected illness. Either way, you don't want to hear that word before illness. And I just thought, I am legend, Will Smith. They create this vaccine that's going to immunize you from cancer, and then cut. Six months later, half the population are these horrible CGI zombies, uh, vampires running around. And of course, there's the question that I don't think anyone has ever answered to my satisfaction, but I haven't asked that much, I'll admit. What about the possibility that COVID just keeps evolving and becomes like the flu, where every year there's a new strain? There's a COVID-20, there's a COVID-21, there's a COVID-22, with all different lethalities that are like pegged around COVID lethality and require a new vaccine before you've even created one for the original COVID. No, I'm sure that that happens all the time, but it was just the word unexpected illness that made me think, oh God, we've created a new mutant that's going to take over. It's Captain Trips. All the time has come. Feel the power.
Seasons don't fear the reaper. The wind or the summer rain. It's so funny that they're doing the stand right before this hit and now they're going to release it. Hey guys, I guess that's they're thinking that now that everyone has basically decided that it's over, even though it's still happening and happening more and more really and that the trend lines are up and that you're reaching like early uh, outbreak levels of daily infections and deaths now, uh, which like I said, it's just we're all grinding down the emergency in our minds so we can keep going because we're just sick of sitting here. Uh, we're acting like, yeah, it's basically gone. And now we can look back and like, oh, wow, we're lucky that didn't happen. Ha, 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 ha. Now things are great. I can do socially distanced drinks, you know, in the, at the bar, at the, in front of the bar downtown, which it just feels so much like hanging out. And, you know, it's like this is not a shadow of my former enjoyment and my former social life. This is just the new version of that because we've normalized it into reality. We've manifested it into being Okay, so someone's saying that it's sta more stable than the flu and less likely to do that. That'd be good. That'd be good. All right, that's nice. That means you could actually get a vaccine that could be, that could sm stamp it out relatively quickly. That's good. And then, of course, we would look back at that time and learn nothing of any meaning. All we will be is dumber from having lived through it. Dumber and deafer and more distracted and more agitated and more knee-jerk in our reactions and more... Uh, either plugged out of politics to the point of nihilistic self-destruction or plugged into politics to the point of just cripplingly neurotic uh, nearly erotic fixation on the ups and downs of the, of the spectacle of politics either way not in any way better positioned to deal with the horrors of the world around us and the crisis the continuing and folding crises it's like Harrison Bergeron, where you know the smart people are forced to just have like a, 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 a siren go off next to their head every ten minutes, so that they can't think too uh, far ahead before getting disrupted. We're all in that, and then we're going to be in worse worse situation. Monopoly capital will be in a vastly better situation because monopoly capital has monopolized the shit, taken the opportunity of this this corruption. This this uh, this drop in the economic like the 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 ex because you know one of the things hurting there's a drive towards monopoly and capitalism but there's also you know expanding wealth and, and, and inflation through that which makes it harder for capital to you know uh, subsume others because they're able to grow in relationship to them but in a situation like this when you have whole sectors cored out almost overnight monopoly capital can scoop those up and add them into the fucking board. So we're going to have a more monopolized capitalism than we've had since the fucking robber baron days, if we don't already. And it'll be, it'll be uh, something. A lot of mom-and-pop shops are going to get turned into, like... Uh, I was Not even something like, you know, amp, like McDonald's or other things. Not even, more like, they'll still be run by individual families and stuff, but as sort of like an Uber model like a gig economy for restaurateurs where like you get to be a you get to rent out the pre the place and get like a per month per uh, hour salary with no benefits to like basically run a restaurant instead of actually getting the profits from the restaurant like that would be the new model franchises but where 
Like, you're not even the owner, you know? Like, they've already been doing that. Uh, there's a very interesting article a number of years ago now about uh, 7-Eleven owners and how 7-Eleven uh, has essentially proletarianized their ownership in large degree because most because there are these networks of, like, immigrant networks, mostly in India, that uh, basically hook people who want to move to the United States from India up with franchises when they get there, sort of as their stake, like as dowries even. And that... <clears throat> puts them in like sort of a subservient position, you know, vis-a-vis -vis this huge company that can do things like, you know, sc schedule uh, uh, ice raids uh, on their own fucking franchisees uh, if they're thinking of, you know, asking too many questions. Uh, but they, like, squeeze the owners to the point where many of them make, like, $20,000 a year, even though they're spectacularly supposed to be the franchise owners. And they'll just wholesale replace the entire, you know, business model of small restaurants... I'd say restaurants and bars number one because those are the ones that have been hardest hit. Uh, and then, but anything subsidiary to that, escape rooms, shooting ranges, anything, anything that it is a, a service or entertainment, uh, uh, recreational industry, uh, or food or consumption or beverages, anything, any of that element of life uh, that involves people operating out of like fixed brick and mortar uh, positions, like fixed capital. That's not going to be owned by individuals anymore. And that class of petty bourgeois is going to be subsumed into the proletarian class, which, of course, is what the engine of capitalism does. It's separate. You have a bunch of different classes embedded within capitalism. Like I have said, there's even pre-capitalist modes sticking in there. I, as I have said, am an artisan. That is a pre-capitalist uh, uh, um, class configuration. Doesn't exist in... Doesn't ex it is not being produced by capitalism... Like uh, hegemonically now, like it, it was a, it, it, it was something that had to be subsumed within capitalism and it broken up and largely it's gone. What what used to be artisans are ninety nine percent of the time their jobs are now proletarianized. I am an, a remaining artisan. I'm still in there, but the process is there are fewer over time until you grind out and then you've got like things like the small bourgeois, you know, and the PMC, whatever kind of pseudo class you want to pull out of your ass, they will over time be pulled apart. Some of the, the lucky ones will get pulled up into the ownership class. The, the, the losers will get pushed down into the working class, the proletariat. And then you end up with just two. And this is going to be furthering that process hugely. The question is whether, be, whether that's actually helpful to the you know, uh, radicalization of the working class. Uh, the old idea was it would because it would create larger and larger concentrations of working class people who shared working class conditions, shared exploitation, shared an understanding of their alienation and the contributors to it, and could organize that way, create, become a class uh, for themselves with a, with a, a counter-hegemonic political uh, and, and cultural uh, like engine. Like, they, like that's what when it, the, the battle of positions that Gramsci talks about is between capitalist hegemonic cultural uh, institutions, cultural and, and, and civic institutions, and an emergent generated uh, a working class generated working class generated uh, counterculture of its own institutions and like post-war Italy is the closest example in the world to that that concept uh, because the Communist Party during the post-war period when it was the official opposition many of the time and was being suppressed by the Gladio operation uh, had its own civic institutions its own radio stations its own media apparatus its own political leaders mayors senators uh, and and, and uh, you know uh, cooperative aid organizations, uh, uh, 
civic organizations, recreational organizations. That's also true of uh, the, the German Social Democratic Party before World War, uh, before the Nazi rise. That's what. Uh, that's what the concentration of the working class, the pulling of people more and more into the working class, does is because there will always be more working class people than there are capitalists, which means over time, as there are more and more capitalist uh, uh, workers relative to capitalists, that counter hegemony becomes stronger. The uh, the self-organizational capacity of the working class as such gets greater, and then eventually you're able to, through the force of arms and uh, uh, persuasion, any element that comes along with being both most numerous and most organized. It can't be one or the other. If you're organized without numbers, you will be crushed. If you have numbers, but there is no sufficient organization along sufficient concepts, which comes from creating institutions, counter-hegemonic institutions, that's the durability uh, that allows you to like point your movement in the right direction, to find the crack in the fissure of capitalism and drive into it. That's you need that, and the, and the problem is is that while we are t we are seeing before our eyes that this process of, of stripping all class character down to just two defining categories is happening and accelerating, there is no concomitant rise of working class self conscious counter hegemonic uh, uh, institutions. Uh, and culture and that's because of the effect that the process of social atomization, suburbanization racial polarization and nationalism have done to and then compounded and compounded and quadruple compounded and, and compounded beyond words compounded into the brain of a supercomputer the fucking internet on top of all of that has led to a situation where even though more and more people are turning into working class, they're not thinking of themselves as working class. They're just thinking of themselves as someone fallen from a natural social position. That's the full phenomenon of like the PMC who don't actually make money, right? Somebody who is not thriving in the you know, accredited world where you, you learn from your middle class parents that you get a college education and that allows you a certain social standing uh, self-conception and salary and you don't get the salary but you still think of yourself as you still think of yourself first and foremost as part of that class that cultural class of college educated uh, people who are urbane and cosmopolitan and value you know social inclusion as ends into themselves the, the refinements that come from accrediting oneself to the bourgeois morality that late capitalism demands Even though they are now functionally, more and more of them, actually working class in their relationship to capitalism, they are, nonetheless, not imagining themselves that way. And look, think of those Trump-supporting uh, non-college-educated white men who are his base, who are his fucking uh, mujahideen, his, his, uh, his fedayeen warriors, his, 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 his 300 Spartans. Lot, some of them are... Uh, Uh, some of them are, of course, you know, just racist, right? A lot of them are just, just like, I like racism, but a lot of the reason that they're racist is because in America, race is only really uh, examined critically if you're white through the crucible of that bourgeois accreditation into middle-class morality. 
Like, that is really the only interaction a white person in America gets socially. Forget the television and all the stuff you see on the globalist media. In reality, what really brings you towards these, not, not like lived values, I'm talking just things in your head, things that cost nothing to feel, like white guilt and white, white privilege and, and like the idea of white supremacy, like it does, and, and the, your need to fight it and things like that, and your sense of you know, uh, white responsibility for uh, the position of, of African Americans in this country. Uh, like that's the specific shit you get from going to fucking college. So some of it is just racist, but other of it is misdirected rage due to the fact that uh, you're even relative to the work, the rest. Of, like you're in a working class, even relative to your older generations before you or other people you see around you in culture and on the television, your life is getting worse and worse. But you don't know how to define that. You can't define it because no one is talking to you from the other level. All media is the fucking people who went to college talking to each other. And everyone else is just drowning. And they're just sitting on top of this drowning barge going, oh, it's so sad. They can't, they can't free themselves. And they're yelling into the, in, across this chasm, but it's all, it's all loaded with contempt. And it's all loaded with like the, the alienness. Like, you're essentially talking to people who you don't understand. You're condescending, even with the best of intentions. And you combine that with the fact that there's no lived reality of class in this country. People don't live class, especially in the gig economy world where people aren't working in those conditions of like a factory line. I mean, even like I'd say our best hope for mass organization in this country are the few places where people do work together, like big box retailers or Amazon fulfillment centers. So those are, and there are still factories in this country, goddammit, too. And also people like postal workers and teachers. Like that's that's hopeful because it's uh, it's where people work together. But most people don't work together. They're hustling. They've all turned us into lumpen proletarians, even though we have jobs. And the thing is, like, so I think people argue over these questions, and it's like. At every point, you can see how the category confusion is happening and how they basically don't really even disagree. They just have decided that arguing over this constitutes some sort of meaningful engagement for them or recreation or a combination of the two. But man, it's just, if you pull this apart, there's just, there's no resolving it either way. Like, this is a real, uh, this is a real conflict. Oh, and also, I forgot, there's another section of the non-college... Trump supporters who are the boat, beautiful boat people, because yes, there are a lot of upper, uh, like, th- and what those people are, are I'm saying, it's like uh, the class is getting pulled, like the fucking Velcro is getting pulled. Well, some get pulled down, some get pulled up, and they're getting pulled up. And that's, and that's, and the reason they're voting for Trump is because that's a class interest for them. All the cultural stuff is just gravy. And the reason they both feel that way is because we are culturally segregated. Our culture does not... We, and we live it through much more through the prism of race than through class. And as I've said a million times, the only hope we have is that the conditions as they evolve will, will provide opportunities for us to grab in front of us the possibility of reversing these trends and grabbing people together and having them pull in the same direction to inter- interdict with the slide we have in towards total monopoly domination. And I don't think it's lost. 
I don't think we're doomed. I just think that we have to accept that we're at a more basic level, we're fighting at a more basic level than a lot of us want to be because the implication of that is that, man, we have so far to go. But, you know, acceptance is the first step towards moving forward. And I feel like a lot of us are just fighting through this Kubler-Ross cycle. Like, we stay in the discourse and fight it because we're fighting that eventual inevitable realization that these fights are for no good reason. And then we will, you know, when human voices wake us, till human voices wake us. I did not hear the Miss Rebel thing from John Brown. I was watching it. I had the titles on. She said, if those rebels find out about that, you'll get hanged. She was talking to Missouri red shirts, ruffians, who were essentially almost all of them deputized into various militias uh, that were part of the United States government's uh, recognized territorial legislature in Kansas. How were they rebels? Who were they rebelling against? I've not read Under the Volcano. I've heard it's good, though. The chat is full of artisans, I'm sure. No, they were not called rebels. Why would they have been called rebels? They were called border ruffians? Generally, that was what they were called. And uh, in like the press and stuff. They, they, there was also like a, a political movement that was like called the Party of Law and Order. But nobody called them rebels. They weren't rebelling against anyone. They were enforcing... They were enforcing what was the closest thing to a legitimate... Uh, monopoly of violence in the Kansas Territory, according to Uncle Sam. And the reason that matters is because to mis misstate that is to misstate the position that Brown found himself in and the need to transgress, to need to break out of the strategic uh, stalemate that had ar arisen where neither side was willing to take the next step, which over time benefited the, the, over, the, the larger political momentum behind uh, the the uh, slave uh, state coalition there, the Missouri the Missouri faction, the ones who ended up writing the Lecompton Constitution, even though their election was invalidated and they were not a recognized uh, government, they still were fucking passed and demanded that gov that that Congress approve a constitution that accepted slavery as the law of the land in the new Kansas state. And it was whether or not the Democratic Party would support that uh, constitution that led to the uh, Southern Democrats walking out uh, at the uh, convention in Baltimore in 1860, uh, which led to the Northern Democrats nominating, the remaining Northern Democrats nominating Stephen Douglas, uh, the Southern Democrats nominating for themselves John Breckinridge, uh, some some radical centrists around, uh, in the Clay tradition uh, put a guy named uh, John Bell uh, as the compromise can't we all get along candidate, the cuck. And it was all over the Lecompton Constitution because that was the bridge that was too far even for the dough faces because Stephen Douglas was 
by any respect, he was the next logical guy in line after Frank David Pierce and Buchanan. He was the most prominent congressional doughface. The guy who fought Lincoln in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates over the issue of primarily of slavery and his vehement defense of it. In defense of the planter uh, uh, prerogative in even foreign policy. But the thing is, is that around Stephen Douglas, northern sentiment changed. It was no longer possible in the north to say, just give it to them, like it used to be. Because even northern Democrats, the guys who mostly said, leave slavery alone, I care about the banks, I care about the dang banks, and I care about uh, the revenuers, and I don't give a shit about what these dainty doily motherfuckers, these, these Quaker weirdos uh, in Boston, these, these, these homos, say about slavery. Uh, what's it got to do with me? Do you want these uh, those black people up in here? I don't, you know, whatever. But they saw slavery as a threat. To, the more they saw slavery as a competing threat to them, a, com a competitive economic system that could realistically put them in a position to lose their uh, market power, either as a farmer or as a laborer of any kind, because they'd be competing with literal free, free labor, they said, nope, this is a bridge too far, because the Lecompton Constitution was... If they accept this, then Kansas is a slave state in the Union with two new senators breaking the balance in the Senate and meeting with a Democratic president, because Democrats had a lock on the Ethnologue College at that point, especially with the Whigs imploding, and the Dem Republicans, this brand new party that had just emerged and only had one presidential candidate, uh, up to its, to its credit, the, uh, the adventurist uh, uh, self-promoter John C. Fremont. They had to go with a celebrity just to get people's attention. But boom, second time they have this. It's still not, it still would have fallen to a unified Republican Party, or a unified Democratic Party. And that unified Democratic Party would then be voting to mean to put slavery in every state. And once it's in every state that surrounds the North, how long before it has to be introduced there to keep moving, to keep to keep pushing forward, to keep allowing a new area for slavers to import slaves and, uh, and um, create a new market that creates demand for old, older slaves, older lines of slaves. By, the, by, by, the, by 1860, most northern, uh, the, Virginia, the Virginia slave trade was mostly uh, about breeding and selling slaves down to the, plant, the big cotton plantations in the south because the, that, teeth, that tidewater had been sort of already... Uh, farmed out by the over-aggressive uh, uh, farming of cash crops like tobacco. But you had this huge human capital stock that had to go somewhere. And if you foreclose that, that if you draw the, 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 if you end that process of expansion, that's the end of the fucking system over time. And they understood that, which is why they pushed forward. But northern whites understood it too, and they didn't want to be competing. And so, even Douglas had to draw a line at Lecompton. And that helped lead to Lincoln winning, and that then guaranteed the Civil War. And so it was the Kansas War, more than anything, that sharpened the sectional crisis to the, to the breaking point, which needed to happen for slavery to end. And what did it? It was Kansas and then Harper's Ferry. I'm just saying that that means if that strategic context where you go from a situation where it looks like slavery is about to get ready to just chomp on and get its jaws around the neck 
of free labor in the north to the hinge reversing and then the final confrontation, which leads inevitably, thanks to the superior industrial capacity and population and organizational abilities of the North, to Northern victory and to the end of slavery, as it had to be. And the funny thing is, is that you could really argue that the Civil War is essentially a uh, the final. It's the war between the Federalists and the Jeffersonians in its final form. Like if you if you if you if you want to like if you look at it as an ideological conflict, like. Forgetting the fact that this is all just a, term, a, a cultural description for a, a material process, which is the development of parallel uh, uh, economic systems. Plantation-based agriculture in the South, slavery-based agriculture in the South, and free labor and smallholding in the North, or free manufacturing labor uh, and smallholding yeoman farmery in the North. They produce completely competing and different cultures. The fact that, uh, that the majority of the peasantry of northern uh, of the northern states was um, made up of smallholders who lived on their own land and farmed their own land, right? It meant that they created pro uh, 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 they also were able to uh, produce produce uh, uh, um, surplus produce. They would be able to most of them if they were successful. And there was a lot of the northern land wasn't rich enough to do big plantation agriculture, especially in New England, but there was enough land that individual smallholders could farm enough food to sustain their families and then surplus to sell. And what would they do? They would essentially exchange surplus crops for finished mechanical and material items, like pieces of clothing, uh, uh, manufactured items, things for the farm, industrial, the, the basis of an industrial uh, economy, basically. And that transmission belt created a civic society around it. Now, in the South, the, 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 the proletariat largely was enslaved labor who produced only enough food for themselves. Like, plantations had, uh, uh, like, all slaves had to essentially, they were their own yeoman in that they, they farmed and they contributed to the farming of the food that fed themselves. But otherwise, they spent all of their time uh, uh, working for the plantation owner meaning that there is no surplus for them to exchange in the cities for finished products. So the demand that created like the industrial economy and the, and the urban life of the North was in, impossible in the South. And so because of that, you essentially had a Federalist country and a Jeffersonian country. Like those two competing philosophies of government that emerged from the reality of the end of the uh, American Revolution was now uh, reduced to uh, a real proposition because of the fate of geography, because of the fact that there was so much rich soil that allowed for the creation of these vast, profitable uh, uh, in, um, uh, agricultural operations that could create huge surplus amounts of, um, of cash crops that could provide the material basis for also for formulating industrial capitalism in northern United States and also Great Britain. You know, it provides the fuel for the capitalist machine. Uh, they had, like, all those linen mills in, in Manchester were spinning, for a lot of the part of it, slave linen, slave, slave cotton. And the, because the Jefferson, like, the Jeffersonian idea of American liberty that we live with is essentially the idea of living as a farmer. Now, 
Jefferson thought he meant small yeoman farmers, but in reality, that's not uh, that's not possible without creating cities. Like you can't have yeoman farmery the way they did in the north without creating the urban culture and urban infrastructure of things like banking and finance and like like abstracted uh, you know essentially intensified capitalist productive relationships. Those things are united. You can only have continuing agricultural life if uh, there is no no excess, no surplus built up. And the way to do that is through slavery. Because he is imagining agrarian life through the lens of a slave owner, not a yeoman. He was a slave owner, not a yeoman. So when he, he idolized urban life, he was idolizing his experience. Now, because the fact people like him were the people who made up the uh, political aristocracy, the leadership of the new country in the South, over time, their institutions became the institutions of Jeffersonian democracy. Meanwhile, in the North, the absence of, of large tracts of rich land that could accommodate slave agriculture, the fact that uh, the, the relatively rocky soil of the North was more conducive to, um, to smallholding peasantry, also the new territories of the North, even if they were richer in land, were also more deeply uh, filled with Native Americans who had to be contended with and much more, uh, you know, would require much more investment to just clear for large, any kind of large-scale agriculture at all. It was largely wilderness. Uh, so those two modes come into conflict in the Civil War, finally. They cannot be resolved. And then instead of recognizing, and then when the problem is, is that, of course, that victory by Northern capitalism would eventually result in a synthesis between the two. It's not going to be the, just the destruction of the one. That's impossible. The problem is, is that the new thing we created, because of the results of Reconstruction specifically, uh, was misshapen, essentially. Uh, its historical form bent that Jeffersonian model of endless expansionary uh, freedom uh, maintained and now sits unhappily in 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 conjunction with like this uh, attempt to build something like a rationalized you know uh, social democratic capitalist edifice uh, it's it's a bummer man it's a real bummer but the whole point is that those those crisis moments are they're fluid and we had bad we had a bad run of things like Lincoln getting shot was very bad you know, I don't know how much better things would be if he hadn't died, but man, I gun, I, I'm willing to say they would have been in some way better, which at this point, a little bit, could go a long way. The way things ricochet, you know, the way things amplify over time and space. Uh, it's a bummer, though. But yes, like, the entire American conception of freedom was Jefferson's idea of limitless uh, farming. Like, the idea that you don't have to have all that icky, complicated stuff. That's socially... Uh, that stuff that requires you to subsume yourself into a social collective. You know, even if it's, like, we can say that, uh, that it's, this isn't, we're not talking about socialism, we're talking about capitalist market exchange. Yes, but capitalist market exchange, remember, is more progressive than what is Jefferson's essentially feudal worldview. And so he gets this feudalized capitalism because, you know, it was a part of capitalism. Slave agriculture was part of capitalism. All those fucking big uh, um, all those huge plantations in the south were powered, were fueled by finance capital, they were all mortgaged to the hilt, they were all financial instruments they sold fucking stock, 
They were integrated into every level of the of the world, the burgeoning world uh, um, capitalist economy. But they had this 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 feudal remnant structure based around these uh, Jeffersonian ideas, and we did not crush enough that idea of American liberty uh, when the North won the Civil War. Uh, that was the main failing, not crushing it n enough. Uh, and I think. Like I said, it wouldn't have been fully crushed because you don't do that. There was always going to be a, a some level of accommodation that leads to a synthetic thing, not not just the dominance of one. That's a dialectical. That's 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 basic. You can't argue otherwise. But you, we certainly would be could be in a different position vis-a-vis -vis that idea. And really, I think the real the the dagger in the heart to the to our progress has been that the Constitution itself was not destroyed. Because the Constitution was what got us into that fucking mess in the first place. And the same way that the Articles of Confederation reached a point where they were no longer sustainable, and we started over from scratch, the Civil War should have been the thing that had us start over from scratch on a governing document. Which would have put us on, yes, still capitalist, but on a track towards an actual industrial capitalism that had a, like, a social relationship at its base that accepted liberal subjectivity, which is equal subjectivity, which would have removed racism as a, bat, as a mystifying and socially uh, atomizing and, um, and counter-revolutionary force in American life. And so the fact that we're still dealing with the Constitution, it's still this noose on our neck, it really is the thing, that moment stands out as, as the thing that warped our behavior. We're like a bound foot from a Manchu, you know, bed maiden. It's uh it's a bummer. And wouldn't have made miracles happen. My god, I'm just saying we would be in a better position now than we are. That's all I'm saying. How much better? I don't know. I'm just saying we'd be in a better position. We would not have Trump as president. We would not be in this specific dilemma. I think we would have more durable and, and vibrant working class institutions in this country. We would have a more left-wing uh, 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 government. Even if things had gotten worse after the seven, even if like even if you have the same like basic structure of a post-war boom followed by a collapse of the world order and then a reorientation around like global finance capitalism that led to the end of American uh, industrial dominance and its replacement in the supply chain with. Uh, cheaper labor in the emerging East and the America becoming instead the buyer of last resort, the, the surplus absorber within the capitalist system to uh, you know maintain its its military might overseas and to, to provide like the mouth at the center of it to absorb all uh, surplus uh, production to, to regulate exchange. Even if that had happened, we would be in a better position. We'd probably have universal health care. Let me just say that. We would probably fucking have it. And we would not be in the situation where we are essentially biting our brains out of our head as a culture and driving ourselves insane because of our civic belief in freedom coming from this freakish, perverted, bewigged, uh, uh, aristocrat, sex criminal, Epstein-ass fucking uh, slave owner, Thomas fucking Jefferson. Like, the fact is, is that when we reach back to our like most cherished American ideas of freedom, they don't belong to like medieval peasants. Uh, 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 in Europe, anyway, 
when, when people think of freedom, obviously more and more they're thinking in terms of, you know, atomized American freedom, freedom to consume, you know, fr uh, the, freedom of, uh, the freedom of the market. Sure. But at the base of that, they also have a folk understanding of freedom that flows from the peasant, peasant solidarity that came before capitalism because these things don't go away. They echo. The, ec the, the, the nightmares of all dead generations lay on the brain of the living. We, on the other hand, when we think of freedom, even, I think, on the left, we end up at Jeffersonian freedom to expand. Freedom, because that's the thing about Jeffers this Jeffersonian idea, and the reason that it foundered, finally, on its inability to expand itself, because it cannot be stabilized within a system. It demands always, it can only compensate with more. Because you're not giving people a social structure. The hostility, the hostility to the state at the center of Jeffersonianism is the hostility to being integrated into a social situation. You're saying the fact that I, unlike my peasant or aristocratic European forefathers who were bound by superstition and, 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 and stultifying social conventions in Europe and, 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 and the, the, the vile hand of like Roman papistry or whatever the fuck, now here we can breathe free in the open spaces, but only... But, but that means that we have to do it by ourselves. Because to participate into, to, to allow ourselves to be brought into a social relationship is to undermine our freedom of movement. And freedom of movement here is defined as the only freedom that matters. As opposed to a deeper understanding of freedom as the freedom to freedom uh, from fear, really, and pain that comes with a social uh, awareness and, and social rep reciprocal, um, reciprocal obligation. That there is a, a meaning there and a, 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 a richness to life that compensates for any narrow ap, low, uh, reduction of the aperture of like indulgence, and that what that means is that the only answer to social friction in those situations has to be expansion. There can be no resolution because there aren't institutions that people agree upon that can arbitrate distinctions, and so it leads. All questions have to be answered by expansion. And so at what's, what really healed the Civil War breach between the North and South, the, 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 the whites of the North and the whites of the South, after we decided that we were going to solve the problem, the emergent social problem of emancipation by just reinscribing slavery as much as we could in social form, if not in, in like technically uh, economic relationship, uh, we invaded uh, fucking... Spain, or we invaded Spanish uh, Caribbean and fucking Philippines and the Spanish-American War. We consecrated that with expansion into in becoming a world power. And then there was some battle within about that, but by the end of World War II we had the whole world. And then space, and we always had this, this reach, and it was not until the Iraq War, I think really, that the fucking the curtain closed. And now we're turning inward and we're taking this Jeffersonian notion of freedom and individuality and liberty and what it means to be an American and how and how that relates to you know a morality how Amer being American is part of a moral framework that involves Christianity certainly and, and as, as uh, Protestantism all all that shit it all flows uh, but that requires expansion requires somebody getting some of this pie at every point because there's no other fun way to reduce social friction. 
And now, how are we going to reduce it when that is the presiding ideology of government? And we have this fucking noose around our neck in the form of the U.S. Constitution, smothering any chance of us breaking free of, of this wild thrashing death as we perox as we peroxim our way through the, the fucking Kubler-Ross cycle, realizing that our social body must die if it cannot continue to expand. You guys know about, uh, you know why some of these answers are, are purple highlight? I don't know why that is. I gotta say, as much as I'm sure I'll hate Hamilton and as much as I hate the concept of the whole thing, I do think if you want to talk hero and villain... If you're talking Hamilton and Jefferson, Jefferson is the bad guy. I'm sorry. And the thing is, is that there will always be moments in American history where the Jeffersonian tradition has very worthy exponents who are doing good things to check the rise of horrifying monopoly capitalism, unchecked capitalism. I'm just saying that it was an insufficient uh, 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 antithesis to the thesis of Hamiltonian developmentalism. You know what I mean? Or maybe it's because it was the thesis. When we never broke through, we never broke over it, because there was always free real estate, always free real estate. Free real estate made us, in every critical moment, able to vent off instead of confront within. Because in Europe, those fucking kettles started popping because there was nowhere for the pressure to go. In America, there was always somewhere for the pressure to go. And to me, that's the answer to every question about why America is exceptional, why it didn't have a labor party. It all boils down, however you want to talk about the functions, you want to talk about the fucking social expressions of it, the political expressions of it. It boils down to that law of fucking thermodynamics. So, if it's like... You want to broadly go progressive, regressive figure. The progressive figure is Hamilton. The regressive figure is Jefferson. And I would say that just on a personal level, even though Hamilton was a creep and, a, and an arist and kind of and obviously an arch capitalist uh, psycho uh, who feared and had nothing but fear and disgust for the idea of a common man, uh, was still better than that hypocritical, fucking snot nosed, just. He, the guy Boswell talked about when he said, "Why do we hear the the the, 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 the why do, why must we hear the loudest bleeding for freedom from the drivers of Negroes?" That's who he was talking about. Fucking Jefferson. And the guy immediately, even though he had said that the that there should be no you know real formal power for the president and and and, and the and the, leg, and the executive because oh we got to love that legislature. Gets in there, Louisiana Purchase, immediately. Oh, what's that? Your fucking principles don't compart with this thing anymore? And the thing that really mattered was expansion, because it's the economic engine of the kind of uh, warped, capitalized, uh, like, ag agrarian economy that you've created here. Inevitably, out of your idea, you fucking asshole. We do love John Quincy Adams, folks. 
Uh, one of our, I mean, you want to talk best presidents. He is in the conversation. When she passed like Lincoln and FDR, uh, spare, spare a moment for JQA. Uh, also one of the better men to be president. Uh, and a man who recognized the moral he recognized that every oath in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence was going to be worth nothing over time if we made territorial expansion the undergirding uh, mechanism of our economy he, he at the moment he's like this is going to lead us to abandoning everything and it did and it has and look where we are and everything that everybody wants to talk about America and all the good stuff is this schizophrenic uh, this Frankenstein creation of of the of the of the like echoed emanations of a greater horror and a greater mystery, uh, a series of crimes and exploitations and thefts and expropriations. We didn't we weren't never made to behave the way that the European states were made to behave. They spent a thousand years smashing against each other to grab grab grab. But god damn it, at some point you realize that there are other forces outside of you. And we never hit that because the Native Americans who resisted our uh, expropriation of the continent never were able to cohere into a meaningful state resistance because they started from such a lower level of uh, like surplus economy that they were not able to, you know, because you can't do it overnight. It has to be staged, and there was no time. And especially after you have the initial massive die-off from like the essentially unintentional un uh, uh, biological warfare campaign that happened before there was even uh, settling in North America. That had a huge impact. And then, over time, you know, uh, Native populations were either absorbed into the greater system or were pushed out of it, but, uh, you know, disinherited of any uh, land and also uh, residue of, you know, social formation. Or, or, I mean, institutional formation that you could turn into an actual organized resistance against another state. It was not all intentional. The first farm, the first, the first big, I believe it was the first big smallpox uh, uh, plague in Nor in uh, the Mid Atlantic, the one that uh, happened right before the, uh, John Smith showed up, the one uh, that allowed them to even like set up there, was because some uh, Basque f uh, fishermen or something like blew onto Long Island and had an inter interaction with like a local tribe and then left and that led to something like 80% die off of the population within within a very short period of time and so of course later on you have intentional like Lord Jeffrey Amherst and his smallpox blankets what I'm saying is that they didn't even have to try was how lethal they were they were like radioactive fucking berserkers Uh, who else? Are, someone asked who are their most American Americans? Because John Brown is one of our most American Americans. P.T. Barnum, another one of our most American Americans. First name that comes to mind, anyway. I'll think of some more. That's a good question. I was gonna like make a book of, of a, 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 a rogues gallery of like our most condensed Americans along certain axes, like representations of certain, you know, fundamental American uh, uh, expressions of culture. Henry Ford is another good one. Yes. Mark Twain also. Very good. Very good, for sure. 
Donald Trump, 100%. Joseph Smith, yes. Yeah, no, you guys are all 100%. That's fire. Andrew Jackson, absolutely. And of course, Abraham Lincoln. L. Ron Hubbard? We gotta get some women in here. I feel like we're, uh, we're doing it. Oh, Martin Luther King. Pamela Anderson's Canadian. Thank you very much. Phyllis Schlafly, yes. Oh. <laughs> Hillary Clinton for sure. Jill Maxwell, also British. It seems like, I'm, I'm realizing that, yeah, when, when you talk in these terms, you're always going to end up being very hetero cis male normative. Just because so much of, uh, you know, our received, uh, my received anyway, you know, narrative of America is this, uh, is this public facing, you know, battle of, uh, of ideas in a public sphere that has been largely, uh, largely banned Largely the domain of men and white ones at that. Uh, Amber Frost, definitely. All right, I've gone about an hour here. I might ask her, have one more question. Anne Hutchison is a good one. Good way. Good way to end. Anne Hutchison. Who's going to win the World Series? The Dodgers. Finally. And it'll be with a fucking asterisk. It'll be a fake season. Who wants to win this year? I don't. I wouldn't. Good. Keep it. I don't even want it. Forget about it. Get it out of here. Get it out of my face. Bye-bye.